Okay, well today we're going to start a <clears throat> three-part series on biblical perfection. Biblical perfection. We've talked about things like um, why once saved, always saved is wrong. We've talked about the doctrine of salvation. Uh, we've talked about these other things that are so intertwined. The doctrine of sin, what sin is. And so today... Uh, this will be the last foundation I'm going to do, and I think Brother Tracy will finish up his uh, last foundation at the end of October, and then our foundation series will be over with. Praise the Lord. I think it was very necessary. The Lord led us to do these things, and I pray it's a blessing to you as you go back and look over it some more. That helps to give you a foundation moving forward, and then also for those who are listening via video, that's a blessing to them. Okay, so let's talk about Biblical perfection. Let's talk about what it isn't first. There's lots of misconceptions out there about what perfection is. A synonymous term, a synonym for perfection in this teaching would be holiness or obedience or love. Those would all be synonyms for perfection. But let's talk about what we what I don't mean when I use this this P word that's become a dirty word to most people. It's like a cuss word to most professing Christians to use this word perfection. And you can see that by the way they respond when we speak to them out on the streets, on college campuses. So the first thing physical perfection is not, it's not, I'm sorry, the first thing biblical perfection is not, I just gave it away, is physical perfection. We're not talking about physical perfection. Even the most muscle-bound bodybuilder in the world is not physically perfect. He's going to die someday. He is prone to sicknesses. No matter how well you eat, no matter uh, how much you keep yourself from physical ailments on earth, flus, colds, viruses, you eventually will die. Unless, of course, Jesus returns before you die. The only exception to that. So when we talk about perfection, we're not talking about physical perfection. Even Jesus had to be made physically perfect. We see this in Luke 13, in verse 32. Jesus says about uh, Pilate here, I'm sorry, about Herod, he says, um, and he said to them, go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. And tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. I shall be perfected. Obviously alluding to physical perfection or the physical resurrection. From the day that he would go through three days later. When he would become physically perfect. He would never die again. We're not talking about intellectual perfection. That's the second thing we're not talking about, what perfection is not. That only belongs to God. We forget things. We get things wrong. We make mistakes intellectually. Um, and sometimes it has nothing to do with forgetting either. It's just a matter of just making a mistake. So it's not intellectual perfection. Only God is all-knowing. You'd have to be all-knowing to be intellectually perfected, perfect. Uh, perfect. And even then, if you were all-knowing... You'd have to use that knowledge perfectly every single time. So even if God to give you all knowledge, does that mean you couldn't forget things? 
and lose that knowledge at some point in time. So we're not talking about intellectual perfection. It doesn't mean that, just the third thing it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that one can automatically walk on water. This is the kind of nonsense you hear on the, on the streets on college campuses. Well, if you're perfect, go ahead and walk on water. Well, I mean, if God gave me the power to do that, I would do that. And that'd be pretty cool, actually, to walk on water. But uh, God has not given me the power to them. That power is not guaranteed. But the power to obey God is guaranteed to each person. So we're not talking about walking on water. It doesn't mean that one is deserving of being bowed down to and worshipped. That's the fourth thing. It doesn't mean that one is deserving of being bowed down to and worshipped. This belongs, obviously, to God only. And if you accept such bowing down and worshiping, you become a sinner. You know, it'll be perfect. And it shows that someone who says such things does not understand this position. Number five, it doesn't mean that one doesn't need Jesus. It doesn't mean that one doesn't need Jesus. This kind of objection to this teaching assumes that Jesus is only needed for one thing. Forgiveness of sins. That's what it assumes. Jesus also gives the strength to overcome all sin. I have, actually, I woke up this morning and I uh, checked my email and someone had posted a comment on my YouTube page saying these very things, some of these very things. You know, if you're perfect, you don't need Jesus. If you're perfect, you know why aren't you the sacrifice for sin? What's the next one here? Um, it doesn't mean that one who is perfect could die for the sins of others. One reason, with a very small reason, is that they have sinned at some point in time in the past themselves. Just because someone is perfect now does not mean they've always been perfect. Of course, it must be God who dies for your sins. But this, die, this sinning in the past at some point in time disqualifies you from being that sinless, blameless sacrifice. So number six, it doesn't mean that you could die for the sins of others. Number seven, it doesn't mean that someone who is perfect has never sinned. Of course, that kind of perfection only belongs to God. Like when Jesus says, there's no one good but God alone, that's what he's referring to. He's not saying there's no one who's ever been, never been good or never been holy. He's talking about ultimate perfection, ultimate goodness never been evil or wicked. Next, it doesn't mean that one lacks free will or the ability to sin in the future. Oftentimes when people are objecting to this uh, biblical perfection, also known as holiness or obedience to God, they'll say, uh, when did you come into this state of perfection? Well, using that word shows their misunderstanding of it. It's not some state you come into that you're immovable from, that cannot be changed. But see, their thinking is wrong because they think, well, you were born a sinner, that's a state, and then somehow you became perfect, and that's a state. But your thinking is wrong from the beginning. Because no one's born a sinner, someone sins because they choose to sin. And someone doesn't sin because they choose not to sin. So free will and uh, the presence of temptation give the possibility of future sin a reality. It can happen. 
And if anyone ever thinks they've come to this state of perfection where they're immovable from it, they're deceived right off the bat. They've left themselves open to falling. Because if, if you can't sin, then you can't be tempted. Because why would the devil mess with you and try to tempt you if you couldn't sin? He'd be wasting his time, wasting his energy. It doesn't mean that, the next one is, it doesn't mean that one won't sin at some point in time in the future, or that one won't continue to be tempted to sin. And we see this in situations like Noah. And we'll talk about Noah more here in a minute. How the Bible declares Noah perfect, but then later on, he got drunk. Which proves that you can be perfect and then become imperfect again. And it proves that someone who God called perfect can still sin at some point in time in the future. Next, it doesn't mean that someone is always praying, always rejoicing, always preaching, always reading the Bible, etc. These kind of things, these good things that God says to do, have time constraints on them. Because we all have to sleep. We all have to eat. I like to see someone try eating and preaching at the same time. See how that works out. I like to see someone uh, sleep and read their Bible at the same time. I know people who sleep with their eyes open, but they're not, they're not coherent. They're not actually reading at the same time. Uh, there's rare time that I will be preaching and praying in my mind, but even that's difficult. So there's time restraints on things that God commands us to do. Next, it doesn't mean that one is required to keep all of the ceremonial, dietary, clothing, and governmental laws that are found in the Old Testament. We hear this all the time, well, do you eat shellfish? Do you, are you wearing this clothing? Do you teacher up the corner of your beers, and of course I got them on that one, but um, you know, there's different things they bring up that are found in the Levitical laws, the laws of Deuteronomy, that as a New Covenant Christian, as a Gentile, I'm not required to keep these things. I can eat some shrimp if I want to. I can eat a bacon cheeseburger if I want to. God does not consider that sin for me. And we've talked about this quite a bit in our Doctrine of Salvation. The last two teachings were on work salvation. We talked about this quite a bit, so I don't see the need to go through that too much. The next one is, biblical perfection is not work salvation. Or, it's not salvation apart from grace. And all you really need is a couple of verses to refute that. Romans 6.14 says, you, uh, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So being under grace means sin does not have rules, does not have dominion over you. Of course, Titus 2, 11-12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We know the grace of God teaches us to be holy, obedient, biblically perfect. Okay, so we gave, gave a long list of things there of what it is, and you can see the devil is hard at work trying to bring confusion in these matters trying to dissuade people from believing the truth upon this, about this. So let's talk about what it is. 
It is moral perfection. It is moral perfection. Keeping the moral commandments of God. The same commandments that were around long before Moses. These commandments that the people during Noah's time were breaking over and over and over again. That's why God said the flood. These commandments that Paul calls the righteous requirements of the law. These commandments that are written upon your heart, your conscience bearing witness. These are the things you must obey. And we see all throughout the book, the Bible, Acts 15, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, Romans, they make distinguishing things between the the law of Moses, and the law, the moral moral commandments of God. So it's moral perfection. Number two, it's a loving heart towards God and others. It's a loving heart towards God and others. Of course, God first, others second. If you ever get that switched around, you're going to find yourself in situational ethics. You're going to find yourself loving man at the expense of loving God. You might find yourself justifying lying to somebody. You know, the old uh, situation that comes up is, what if your wife walks up to you and says, does this dress make me look fat? Well, my question is, why is my wife putting me in the situation in the first place to ask me that question? Secondly, if I lie to her for her feelings, who have I now offended? I've offended God. Who's more important in this situation? God or my wife? Of course, I would never tell my wife she'd look fat. Um, but I might say I like this dress better than that dress or this dress better than that. There's different ways to respond to it where you won't have to offend her. But at the same time, you're not lying to her. Another example that often comes up is the example of Rahab, the harlot. And she lied to people to protect the spies of God. But the Bible never justifies her lying. The Bible never praises her for lying. The Bible praises her for hiding the spies. And so if you ever get this backwards where you think you love your neighbor and you're not obeying God's commandments, you're in sin. Simply put. Don't ever let anyone convince you that you can lie and it'll be okay with God. The Bible says all liars, not some, all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. And if you can justify lying to someone to be loving to them, then what manner of other stuff can you justify in be loving to somebody? Well, I, I saw my friend being uh, spending too much time with his electronics or his, or his vehicle or his boat. He was being covetous and greedy, so I stole it from him to help him out. I was being loving towards him. You know, I, I saw this uh, abortion doctor killing little babies. So in order to be loving towards these babies, I killed the abortion doctor. See how far these things can go, friends? So you better make sure that your loving heart is loving towards God first, and man second. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest is like it. 
but it's still the second greatest. If for some reason there was persecution of Jews in America, but not persecution of Christians, and a Jew came to my door and said, can I hide here? I'd say, well, I might allow that. Of course, I'd have to put a lot of prayer into it before this even happened. So I know just by hiding a Jew, I'm putting myself in danger and my whole family in danger. Just to hide him, or hide her. I said, listen, I'm not going to lie. You can go hide down here in the basement, and if someone comes knocking on the door, I'm going to tell them the truth, or I may say nothing at all, but I want you to know, when they knock on the door, the hiding is done. They're going to come looking for you, probably. You can escape out the back door and run into the woods if you want to. But I am not going to lie for you. That puts my soul in danger. There's a testimony to them that I'm not willing to compromise on God's word for anyone or anything. So make sure your heart is proper. Number three. Perfection is someone who is obedient to all of the knowledge they have. is someone who is obedient to all of the knowledge they have. They do what they know they should be doing, and they spend as much time doing those things as they possibly can, and they spend no time at all doing things they shouldn't be doing. So that's moral perfection. That's, that's what biblical perfection is, biblical obedience, biblical uh, love is moral perfection, a loving heart towards God and others someone who's obedient to all the knowledge they have. In the Hebrew, there's a word that is typically translated as perfect. It's the word talmim. And it means perfect, complete, sound, wholesome, unimpaired, innocent, having integrity, entirely in accord with truth and fact, without defect, unblemished, blameless. What this word means. Let's let's go to Genesis six nine. Let's see this uh, one of these. There's lots of occurrences of this word. I'm not going to go through all of them, obviously, but I hit on some high point ones. Genesis chapter six. Actually, we'll start in verse eight. God just got through saying how everybody was wicked and how he can destroy the earth, and says, so, "But Noah found grace." In the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So he's called just, which is synonymous with righteous, okay, doing what is right. Perfect, which is this word talmim here. In his generations, Noah walked with God. So Noah was different than the rest of them. If Noah was just like the rest of them, he's included in the every intent of the thoughts of their heart when only evil continually. God wouldn't have bothered starting over with him. God probably would have wiped him out too and made a new, made a new Adam. But he saw Noah was different. And then we see in Genesis 7-1, right before he goes into the ark, God says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now keep in mind, saints, this is someone who did not have the Holy Spirit living inside of him. He did not have a Bible. Jesus did not die on the cross for his sins yet. Yet this man is walking in holiness. 
even though the whole world around him is as wicked as can be. So wicked that God says in the last days it will be as the days of Noah. We're not even there yet. And he was still holy. And he was a preacher of righteousness. I have a picture on my wall in my house, which I think is a good picture of Noah. It has a huge ark, not a little tugboat with giraffe heads sticking out of it. Okay. A huge ark. has dinosaurs coming to it. It has a crowd of mockers mocking him, and he's preaching to them. I think that's exactly what it was like for him. The whole world was against him. The whole world probably thought he was crazy for building a boat where there was no water. But it came. God just went came. But he was different than the rest of them. And if Noah can do it, so can you. You have no excuse for not being completely holy. You have so much more stuff to draw from. You have God's Word, the Bible. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The world is not as wicked as it was during Noah's time, even though it's progressing and going that direction. But Noah was righteous. And if he can do it, surely you and I can. Genesis 17.1 This is God's command to Abram. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Tamim. Perfect. Same word from Genesis 6 9. Now, what does blameless mean? It means you have nothing to be blamed for. Nothing. You're blameless. Nothing to be blamed for. And this is what God's command was to Abram. Once again, Old Testament, before the word of God was like we see now, before the Holy Spirit, before Jesus dying for him, and God commanded him to be blameless. Well, surely you can do it, friends. And then we see, I'm not going to go through any of those verses, all throughout Leviticus, we see this word Tamim used about sacrifices, unblemished sacrifices. Without spot sacrifices, which are a picture of who? Jesus. I mean, animals can't be morally without spot. They're amoral creatures. But they're a picture of Jesus. So their physical, their lack of physical defect is pointing to Jesus, who had physical defects, but he had no moral defects. That's what it's pointing to. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 13. See what God's command is to the whole nation of Israel. Very simple. It says, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. And if you look what it says before that, it says, Don't do the things the nations around you are doing. That's why I'm destroying them and giving them to your hands. All this abomination, this witchcraft. He says, But you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and, div and diviners. But for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. You've got to be different. You've got to be blameless. And mine even has a footnote on the word blameless, and in my notes it says perfect. Literally means perfect. Same word, tell me. Go to Job. Let's see what God said about Job. So God has called people perfect. He's 
They told people to be blameless and perfect. Let's see what he says about Job in Job 1 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Could God say that about you? This morning, could God say that about you? That you're blameless? That you're upright? That you fear God and you shun evil? Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who one who fears God and shuns evil. These are the words of God about Job. The words of man about Job. Because man has limited knowledge. We each have limited knowledge of each other, even if you live in the same household. You don't know what thoughts go through someone's mind. You don't know the intents of their heart. But God does. And he says about Job, he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And it wasn't uh, someone who was poor, who had a lack of temptations. He was rich in the world's eyes. I'm sure he had plenty of temptation to be greedy and covetous. But he wasn't. Chapter 1 and verse 21. This is what Job said after his property is taken away and his children are gone. He says in verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. The typical Christian from today, professing Christian, say, wait a minute now. We all sin every single day. We, Job had to have been sinning right then. Even though they don't know Job's heart, based upon this philosophy they have, according to the traditions of men, they said, well, Job had to have been a sinner. He couldn't be blameless and upright. He couldn't be shunning evil and fearing God. He had to have sinned. goes on in chapter 2 and verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, once again, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So he still is holding fast to the same integrity he had before he lost all his property and his children. And then we see in verse 10, Job speaking to his wife. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And you know what James is about that? If you don't sing with your, your lips, your tongue, that you're a perfect man. Able to control your whole body. So, that's Job. That's Job. That's what we need to be like perfect man, able to control his whole body. And let's look at Job's testimony about himself. Now, if you haven't read through the book of Job, I encourage you to do it. You'll see, oh, it's like a conversation I have with typical professing Christians today. I'll say, I'm holy. No, you're not. I'm holy. No, you're not. You're a sinner. You were born a sinner. You came out of the, your mother's womb a sinner. It's the thing, kind of thing you see from Job's friends. Which, of course, God refutes in the end. Because they don't speak what's right of God. Job does. And then Job prays for them. Job 23, verse 11. 
Job speaking, says, My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. There you go, that's Job's testimony about himself. And then in chapter 27, in verse 3, Job says, Long as my breath is in me, and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right, talking about his friends, till I die I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I shall hold, I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. He, this is the very type of things that I, I say on a college campus or on the streets, that my plan, my purpose, and this is the plan and purpose of every true Christian, is that I'm planning to never sin again. So Job said, Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. That's his resolve. That's his determination. And it should be ours as well. So see, God's testimony about Job, and it lines up with Job's testimony about Job. So who's telling the truth and who's the liar here? Job or his friends? Let's look at King David's testimony about himself. 2 Samuel, chapter 22. Second Samuel 22, verses 21 to 25. <clears throat> the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. <clears throat> For all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Now if you went to the University of Louisville, which is right near Southern Baptist University, lots of Calvinists there, and you were to say those words and put it in maybe a different language so they can't tell it's from David, they would just call you a heretic. You could say, well, let me just read to you what David said. And they would be in trouble, wouldn't they? They're calling David, King David, the person who they say is a man after God's own heart all his life, even though he did sin with Bathsheba. They'd be in trouble with God. Psalm 18. Let's see some more of what David said about himself. Psalm 18. Verses 20 to 24. And this is almost like the same exact thing he just said. <clears throat> the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. And then again in Psalm 101. <clears throat> Psalm 
verse 2. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. A perfect heart. That's what he says. And you can read the rest of Psalm 101 and probably edify you in the same situation. And then we see uh, God's testimony about Satan, Ezekiel 28, and verse 15. He says about Satan, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. you know, do you know that all one-third of the angels who fell with Satan, they were perfect in their ways until iniquity was found in them too? You know, the other two-thirds that are still there have been perfect all this time. All this time, they've been perfect. And they don't even have the gospel. They don't have the gospel we have. They don't have the motivation of Jesus dying for them on the cross. They don't have the influence of having sins forgiven. He who has been forgiven much loves much. But we do. So we have no excuse. Okay, let's turn to the New Testament now. In New Testament, there's a Greek word, teleos. It's the typical word or some variation of it that's translated as perfect. And teleos means pertaining to meeting the highest standard. Pertaining to meeting the highest standard. Perfect, complete full-grown, mature. Perfect, complete, full-grown, mature. People will say, well, God doesn't expect me to be perfect. He expects me to strive for perfection. Typically, I ask as a person, well, why would God tell you to strive for something that's impossible? I don't strive for impossible things. I don't strive to turn Titus into a chicken. I don't do it. I don't strive to grow feathers on my body and fly away. I don't strive for the impossible. And of course, Jesus says something completely different in Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, keep in mind, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not saying this to angels who have never sinned. He's saying it to humans who he knows have already sinned. Verse 1 of Matthew 5 says, Seeing the multitudes, multitudes of people he's saying this to, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this doesn't mean we can go back and erase the sins we've committed as if they never were committed. No, it doesn't mean that. The blood of Jesus washes them away. Does it mean that we're going to be perfect intellectually? No, it means we're perfect according to the knowledge we have, which is what God is. Of course, since God has all knowledge, He's completely perfect. As we have limited knowledge, we're not perfect absolutely like He is, because we don't have intellectual perfection. But still the point is, Jesus told sinners, be perfect. Be perfect. That's what He told them. And if Jesus preached it, I'm going to preach it to sinners. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Moral perfection. A loving heart. Obedient according to the knowledge you have. 
Colossians 1, 27-29. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the last part of verse 27. <clears throat> Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. This is what Paul was striving for and laboring for and what God was working him mightily for, that he may present every man perfect in Christ. That's what perfection is. Because if you're in Christ, you have your past sins forgiven, and the Bible says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. All the old things have passed away, all of it has passed away, and behold, all has become new. And the Bible says, if you abide or remain in Christ, you will not sin. And so this is what the Apostle Paul was striving towards. My question for those who think perfection is impossible, was his striving in vain? Was his labor in vain? Was he really walking according to wisdom and all wisdom like he said he was if it's impossible? And you know what? Even if it is impossible, friends, to be perfect in this life, but yet I preach the same words that Jesus and the Apostle Paul preached. Have I done anything wrong? Even if it is impossible? I still should be striving and laboring the same way the Apostle Paul did. Right? He says, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm assuming as he's working, walking in all wisdom here, and God's working in mightily here, that he's following Christ. So God wants to present every man perfect, because they can have their sins forgiven, wiped out as if they had never happened. And they can stand before God righteous in his sight. Colossians 3.12. 3, chapter 3, verse 12. Through verse 14. <clears throat> Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, above kindness, above mercy, above humility, above meekness, of all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Because if you love, you will be kind. If you love, you will be forgiving. If you love, you'll have no complaints against each other. You will forgive. As Christ also forgave you. But love is the bond of perfection. It's what holds perfection together. Because by loving God and loving your neighbor, you fulfill the whole of the law. You fulfill it all. <clears throat> In Colossians 4.12, Paul is talking about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Why didn't the Apostle Paul encourage Epaphras to stop praying such prayers? Such prayers must be in vain if we can't be perfect. 
in all and, and completed all the will of God. But we can. And his prayers were not in vain. But that's praying in the Spirit right there. Praying the will of God is praying in the Spirit. Okay, let's look at some people who were holy in the, in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1 and verse 6. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1 and verse 6. This is John the Baptist's parents. And the Bible says about them, Luke 1, 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. <coughs> blameless. Righteous before God. Walking in all the commandments. So we see that John the Baptist's parents, obviously God chose them for a good reason. They'd be a good example to him. They'd raise him properly. But they were blameless and walking all the commandments of God. Luke 23, in verse 50. <clears throat> Joseph of Arimathea. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. Or you could say a good and righteous man. Either way, he's called good. Now how are we to interpret this in light of Jesus saying there's no one good but God alone? We have to deal with that. Because Joseph is called good here. And he's called just, which is a synonym for righteous. Even the Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And so obviously, when we deal with these scriptures, they interpret them in context. And I think Jesus is talking about no one being completely good. In other words, having never have sinned. Because Joseph is called good and just. Let's go to the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 20, and verse 18. <clears throat> Acts 20, and verse 18. It's Paul's testimony about himself. him talking to the elders of Ephesus. <coughs> and when the elders had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. <coughs> So Paul is talking about his character among them. And he obviously he's not saying, well, listen, I was a filthy sinner among you. No, I was righteous among you. I was blameless among you. In what manner I lived among you. Acts 24 and verse 16. <clears throat> Him giving his defense before Felix. He says to Felix, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. A conscience without offense toward God and men. If the Apostle Paul can do that, you can do it as well, friends. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1, go through verse 2. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. 
So by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Malachi, give me some more water, son. <coughs> you can just get a cup, son. So we see Paul saying that he renounced the hidden things of shame. He didn't walk in craftiness or deceitfulness. But he commended himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. Paul is again talking to a different church about his conduct among them. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So he's appealing not only to God, he's as a conscious void of his before God, but before men as well. He's saying, you know this. He had full confidence that he had done nothing wrong to them. What a great thing to be able to say. To be able to say that he has no shame before anyone for anything he did. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 2, 10-12 <clears throat> You are my witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own son, that you walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he's calling them to live the same way he's living, devoutly, justly, blamelessly, to walk worthy of God. <clears throat> so the Apostle Paul, that's the way he walked. He died daily. He didn't sin daily. He died daily. Then we have the other apostles. We have the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 14-16 saying, As obedient children, not conforming yourself to your former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So, the Apostle Peter's preaching this to people. Is he now a hypocrite because he's not living it himself? Is he preaching something to somebody that he isn't himself accomplishing within his life? You'd have to say he's a hypocrite if you're going to say we can't be holy as God is holy because he's commanding to do that. As obedient children, not conforming to your former love. I mean, they have to be former. They have to be past tense. Otherwise, he couldn't say that. So we're to be holy as he is holy. We see the same situation with James. Commanding complete obedience in James 1, 21-22. He says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness. Thank you, son. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Was James a hypocrite for saying that? Well, he'd have to be if he wasn't doing it himself. If it's impossible to do those things. And then we see the qualifications of elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. That they're called to be blameless, above reproach, unrebukable. Well, if no one can be blameless, 
then who can be elders? Who can be deacons? We'd be left, we'd be left elderless and deaconless. Without shepherds, without servants. Because it's impossible to be blameless, right? It's impossible to be perfect. So we see all these things, and we know it is possible for these things. And the question becomes, now that we've seen these things, we've seen these different men of God, Old Testament and New Testament, who have done these things. We've seen a, a few examples of this word perfect used in the Old Testament, Talmim, and the New Testament, Teleos. The question becomes, does God expect it, does God command it out of us? Of course, I submit to you, he does. <clears throat> For example, Ecclesiastes 12, 13-14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Simply put. Isaiah 1, 16-17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Pretty clear. Um, Ezekiel 33, 18-19. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. So the wicked is Required to turn from his wickedness and do what is lawful and right in order to live. Of course, most of us know Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, Proverbs 28, 13. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Luke 13, 5, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 15, verses 7 and 10, we see that all heaven rejoices over the sinner who continues to be a sinner. Is that what we see? No, the sinner who repents and then starts being a sinner a second later. Is that what we see? No, he rejoices with the sinner who repents, not the sinner who repents and goes back to it. We have the account of the prodigal son, if you want to know about that. I don't think the father in that story was very rejoiceful when his son was away. So when his son was there, that he was rejoicing. We have Jesus saying, go and sin no more to two different people in John 5.14 and John 8.11. And I don't think Jesus meant go and sin a, a little less. I don't think he meant uh, uh, try to stop sinning. Of course, there is a trying involved in it. There's effort involved in it. There's striving involved in it. <clears throat> but he meant what he said. Go and sin no more. To the, two different people who are sinners. So it's okay for us as Christians to preach to sinners, go and sin no more, to stop sinning. It's okay to preach that, because Jesus preached it, and he preached it to sinners. We see in Acts 17.3 that God commands all men everywhere to repent. We see in 1 Corinthians 15.34 that Paul says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. We see in 2 Corinthians 7.1 that we're supposed to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. We see in Ephesians 5.1 we're to be imitators of God. Well, is God holy? Or are to be imitators of Him? We see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4 and 7-8 through 
Uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual morality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentile who does not know God. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore he who rejects this, this teaching of holiness, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We see in 1 Timothy 6, after just warning against the, the love of riches and how we should be content with food and clothing, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the Son of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Got a long way to go when Paul said that. Got a long way to go when Paul said that. To be blameless until Jesus returns? To keep this commandment without spot? That's some pretty harsh things to say 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. <laughs> Hebrews 5.9 He became the author of eternal life to all those who obey Him. Obey Him. Hebrews 12.14 Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. James 4, 8 through 10. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's enough right there. Stop right there, that's enough. 2 Peter 3, 14. Just talking about the day of the Lord coming back. He says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless. Constantly, over and over again, the Bible is commanding people to be blameless, to be holy, to be obedient, to be perfect. Over and over and over again. Does God command the impossible? 1 John 1, 5-7, this is the message we heard from him, declaring to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know we are in him. Over and over again we see this, friends. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure just as he is pure. Little children, verse 7, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy, destroy the works of the devil in your life. So we see this is commanded over and over and over. God has expectations concerning you. And they're not unreasonable expectations. 
they're reasonable. So God does command, and God does expect it out of you. He has good reason to it. But just because God commands it doesn't mean it's possible, right? So people would say, well, don't you understand that God demands the impossible so you can realize you can't reach it, and so you can trust in his perfect righteousness transferred to you on your account? That's why God does all this. They would say. So is it possible? Well, we've already talked about biblical men and women who have done it. Well, why not you? Why not you? If there are people in the Bible who are perfect, and yet we can't be perfect, then whose fault is it that we're not perfect? It's God's. And I sure hope you don't want to blame God for your sin. Does God command the impossible? Are God's commandments a burden to keep? Well, John 8, 34, 36, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say unto you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, and a slave will not abide in the house forever. Therefore, the Son makes you free. You shall be free indeed. Free from what? Committing sin. He can make you free. No one else can, but He can make you free. John 15, 1 through 6, Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, if you abide in the vine, you'll produce much fruit for His glory. Without Him, you can't do it, though. Romans 6, 6 through 7 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. He can make you free. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. There's one option right there. You can die if you want. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death of these in a body, you will live. That's the better option if you ask me. He will live. And we know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We all know this one. The old temptation is overtaking you, except such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. With the temptation, will always make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You can bear it, friends. Sometimes it's more difficult than others. And there's a good reason for that. God's trying to mold you and make you and go make you go deeper with Him. You know, difficult times where it feels like it's too much to handle. That's when you drop to your knees and you cry out to Him for help. Because He can help you. He is your help in the time of need. Galatians 5.16, if you walk according to the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk according to the Spirit. So if, if you're fulfilling the lust of the flesh, are you walking according to the Spirit? No, you're not. Ephesians chapter 6, and verse 10 through 12. Verse 10 through 13, I'm sorry. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand the wiles, the schemes of the devil. You're not going to be able to stand if you don't do that. For you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. You can stand. You can stand every single time. The variable is you. The variable is not God. The variable is not ability. The variable is you. 
you're the variable. Whether you're going to stand or not. Whether you're actually going to put on the whole armor of God or not. Whether you're going to walk according to the Spirit or not. You're the variable. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Really? Is, is Christ powerful enough that he can help you overcome all sin? Or is he weak? Calvinists love to talk about how sovereign God is and how all-powerful he is. Is he powerful enough to help you overcome sin? To help you overcome lust and greed and covetousness and impatience? And bad words come out of your mouth. I'm not talking about cuss words, but just nasty things come out of your mouth. Bad attitudes. Can he help you overcome those things? Can he help you be loving to your siblings at all times? Can he help you be loving to your children and your spouse at all times? He sure can, friends. He's not a weak, impotent God. He's a strong and mighty God. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. If someone tried to tell you that God's commandments are impossible to keep, you just give them this verse. They're not burdensome. They're a joy. That's a lie from the devil. It's a burden to sin. That's a heavy burden. A heavy load. That I don't want to ever experience again. I got rid of that once and for all. I don't want it back. So is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. But it's also possible you won't. That's on you. That's on you. And what does the Bible say about the disobedient? Well, Matthew 7, 26-27 talks about the obedient disobedient, those who hear the sayings of Jesus and do them. Be likened to a man whose house is upon the rock, and the storm comes and it stands. Those who hear it and don't do it, comes crashing down. Which one are you going to be? So if, if, if all these people of God throughout the centuries have done it, God commands it, it's obviously possible. What should we expect to happen to disobedient? Should we expect God to let them in? Matthew 13, 41-43. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and He will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. They will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Who's going to shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of the Father? The righteous. The wicked will be cast into the furnace of fire. John 14, 15. What does Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. What does it mean if you don't keep his commandments? You don't love him. Don't deceive yourself. You think you have some kind of feeling of love for Jesus. If you're not keeping his commandments, you don't love him. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. You want Jesus to show himself to you? To show himself mighty to you? Keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you to do. Are you a friend of Jesus? First Corinthians 6, 9, 10. We all know this. But people seem to think that if you're a Christian, this doesn't apply to you for some reason. That fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and thieves and covetous and drunkards 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. But it does apply. There's no such thing as a Christian drunkard. No such thing as a Christian fornicator or adulterer. No such thing. Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. For this you know. For this you know. That no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That is applicable to those who say they have trusted in Christ. That is applicable to those who say they have prayed the sinner's prayer. Who go to church every Sunday. It is applicable to those who have been baptized. It applies to you, friends. Colossians 3, 5-7 Therefore put to death your members who are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived, E.D., in them. Now, but now, you yourselves are put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. As you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. A lot of us know this scripture. We would memorize it to preach in the open air. That when Christ returns as mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all those who do not know God and do not obey. Do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These he shall punish with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. James 4.4 4, Adulterers and adulterers, do you not know? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. For therefore is a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Revelation 21, 7-3. He who overcomes. See the, see the condition there? He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all, I say it again, all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. This is the second death. Revelation 22, 14-15. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever, whoever loves and practices a lie. Whoever. Does God send people to hell for all eternity for the unavoidable? Does God send people to hell for all eternity for they couldn't avoid? For they couldn't but help to do? No, friends. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is just and holy and good. He sends people to hell for the avoidable. For things they didn't have to do. They could have done otherwise in every case. And we can all say that about every sin we've ever committed. We could have done otherwise every single time. And that's why we're guilty. That's why we're blamable. That's why we're deserving of hell. All of us. Because we could have done otherwise. 
Who is really our Savior if we have to sin every day? Or have to sin at all? Until the day we die. And then, then we become sinless after we die. Who is really our Savior? Death. Death's our Savior. And really the only thing that changes after death is your body. Right? Your, your new body that's not subject to illness or sickness anymore or death. And your body's made of dirt. That's some powerful dirt right there. Keeping you from being holy. Keeping you from keeping God's commandments. What a bunch of nonsense. So death would be the Savior. The ironic thing is, this Savior of death is considered an enemy of God. The last enemy. And he will cast into the lake of fire. If death is your Savior, he's getting cast into the lake of fire. Why is God angry at the wicked every day? If they couldn't, but do otherwise. They couldn't do otherwise. Why wouldn't he instead give them the ability to do otherwise and relieve himself of his own anger? Does that make better sense? Recently I've been reading through a, an E.M. Bounds devotional every day. I think it's pretty good. Here's a quote from one of his devotionals on not sinning. He says, what is obedience? It is doing God's will. How many of the, re- the commandments require obedience? To keep half of them and break the other half, is that real obedience? To keep the, all of the commandments but one, is that obedience? The spirit that prompts a man to break one commandment is the same spirit that may move him to break them all. God's commandments are a unit. To break one strikes the principle that underlies and runs through the whole. He who does not hesitate to break a single commandment probably would, under the same stress and surrounded by the same circumstances, break them all. So true. Complete obedience or no obedience at all. That's really what it breaks down to, friends. If you're, that's what James 2.10 says. If you keep all the commandments and break it at one point... You're guilty of it all. Not that if you're a liar, you're guilty of murder all of a sudden, but you're guilty of breaking God's commandments, and you're still in danger. Still in danger. Here's some quotes from Leonard Ravenhill. And I'm giving you these quotes because I want you to see, we're not the only people who believe this stuff. Other people who see this and know it's true. Ravenhill said, partial obedience is disobedience. He says, all we have today is a sinning, repenting cycle. That is not what Jesus died for. We need to shout from the housetops and tell people everywhere today, in the church and out of it, that Christianity is N-O-T, not a sinning religion. Not. So many people are deceived on this one point. They think Christianity is a sinning religion. It's for sin, repent, sin, repent. Are they really repenting? No. Sin, repent, sin, repent. It's not the way it works. He says, sinning is not, the nor- not normal in the Christian life. People say you need a little sin to keep you humble. Well, then why not have a lot of sin and be really humble? He says, you say, I'm preaching sinless perfection. You say, well, do you think you can get to a place where you can't sin? I know nothing of the kind. It is not impossible for a Christian to sin, but it's possible not to commit sin. That's the summary of biblical perfection right there. He says, you see bumper stickers. Christians aren't perfect, just forgive them. 
They say Christians are not sinless. They just sin less. Well, i got news for you. If you're a Christian, you don't sin. You've got victory over sin. The Lord Jesus Christ came to purify us unto holiness, and nothing but purity will satisfy Him. One more, he goes on to say, holiness is not a luxury. It's a necessity. If you're not holy, you'll never make it to heaven. Never make it there. One more guy here. He's one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, who Raven and him knew each other really well. He says, you cannot study the Bible diligently and earnestly without being struck by an obvious fact. The whole matter of personal holiness is highly important to God. Neither do you have to give long study to the attributes of modern Christian believers to discern that by and large we consider the expression of true Christian holiness to be just a matter of personal option. I have looked it over and considered it, but I don't buy it. People say. He says... If we are alert enough to hear God's voice, we must not content ourselves with merely believing it. Commands are to be obeyed. Until we have obeyed them, we have done exactly nothing at all about them. And to have heard them and not obeyed them is infinitely worse than to have never heard them at all. So the final test of love is obedience. Not sweet emotions, not willingness to sacrifice, not zeal, but obedience to the commandments of Christ. Our Lord drew a line, plain and tight, for everyone to see. On one side he placed those who keep his commandments and said, These love me. On the other side, he put those who do not keep his commandments and said, These love me not. Friends, hopefully you can see in this first teaching on the series what perfection is, what it isn't. That there are people in the Old Testament and New who were perfect, holy, blameless, righteous. That God commands it over and over again that it is possible. And that if you don't do it, you're in great danger. Great danger. You really are. Okay, so we'll open up the floor now for questions, objections, or things you want to add. Yeah, I'm probably going to address that tomorrow, uh, next week. Okay. Next week will be about objections to this position, including 1 John 1 8, Philippians 3, things like that, Ecclesiastes 7 20. And then a week after that, it'll be how we can live holy, a practical teaching on how we can live holy. But just to address that real quick, it doesn't say we daily sin, it says uh, give us our daily bread. And people impose that upon sinning, like we have to daily ask for forgiveness. I think all Jesus is saying there is that if you have sinned, you need to ask for forgiveness. Just like he's saying if someone has sinned against you, you need to forgive them. It's not saying someone has to sin against you every single day. So they, they, they go to this passage and they simply find the word daily before bread and they impose their philosophy upon it instead of getting from what it actually says. It doesn't say we daily have to sin. 
So I think people are just grasping for straws, trying to find a way to prove we have to send every single day. And let this typhoon, this tidal wave of scripture tell you you shouldn't be sinning. You should, you should be holy and you can be holy. In Matthew 5.48, uh, the words there in the Greek, uh, shall be, uh, that's a present continuing thing or something in the future. It, it almost sounds like it, it's, it's something that, like you pointed out, that Jesus would be physically perfect in the future. And I know that we get a physical perfection in the future as well. Uh, could he be talking about that? No, I don't think so. You look at the context there, it's talking about loving your enemies. And so... Perfection there is defined as love. I don't think he's talking about loving your enemies when you get to heaven. You're too late for it then. Uh, he's talking about loving them now. That's what we're going to do. That's what perfection is, is loving God with all your heart, so much and love your neighbor as yourself. And plus, uh, God the Father, who Jesus is referring to there, even though Jesus is God, he doesn't have a physical body. So I don't think he's talking about that at all. And Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 27-29. Yep, Christ on you, the hope of glory, him we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Yes, okay, um, thank you. And so the, the people that would doubt this doctrine would say, oh, that's an imputation area, I mean, it's obviously something uh, that God is imputing something to us. Uh, how would you answer that? Well, the word imputation is not even found there. Sure, right. That's the first thing I'd point out. Secondly, I believe in imputation, as do we all, just not Christ's righteous transfer to us. Imputation does not mean transfer. I believe I must have a positional type of righteousness as well as a practical righteousness. Positional in the sense that my past sins are forgiven. But that's not the only righteousness that we see in 1 John 3.7. Um, a little trouble, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. He is righteous. So, I mean, they can try to isolate verses all they want, but this is not promoting imputation. Now, it's a difficult doctrine to deal with because it has so many years of garbage attached to it. And you have to go to different verses that know how, like 2 Corinthians 5, know how to deal with these things. Um, so, I mean, if those things come up, I think this is the way I would approach this verse and then know how to deal with the other verses they'll bring up regarding this. Knowing what the word means, too. I mean, logizomai does not mean transfer. It never means that. So. It means account, right? It means account, reckon as, consider as, 